We turn to the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 3, chapter 2, rather, for our scripture reading. Philippians, chapter 2. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick, because ye had heard that. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, 
that when ye see him again ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. The text that we consider this afternoon is verses 12 and 13 of this chapter. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as many of you probably know, the text we consider this afternoon is often considered one of the classic texts of the Reformed faith, of the truth, of the sovereignty of God in all of salvation, over against the teaching of Arminianism. The Arminian says the opposite of what the Apostle says in the text. Although, of course, he would have to claim that he agrees with the Apostle, the Arminian really says to people, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for you are the one who works to will and to do of God's good pleasure. But the Apostle Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The apostle begins the text with the words, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, The Apostle is connecting what he says here to what he said previously in the chapter. Previously, he had exhorted them, starting in verse 1, to fulfill his joy, to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be of one accord, of one mind, to be humble, to be kind, to be loving towards one another. And he grounds that in the work of Jesus Christ, who was in the heights of divinity but who made himself of no reputation and humbled himself even to the death of the cross for our salvation. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Now the apostle says, Wherefore, or therefore, as you have always obeyed, So now continue to obey. As you obeyed in the past, when I was present with you in Philippi, even as you were obedient to the gospel of Christ that was preached to you, so also now in my absence, because at this time the apostle was not in Philippi. He was in Rome. 
He was a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And he wrote this letter from his prison house in Rome. And so he says, Now, just like in the past, so now in the present, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, even though I'm not present in your midst. Notice how he begins the text with the word, the words, my beloved. When the apostle prefaces the exhortation with those words, he shows not only that God loves them, which is a precious truth, God loves you, but he also makes this known, I love you, my beloved. I love you, saints in Philippi, and I love you, saints in Wingham. And that is the preface to the exhortation of the text. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With this encouragement, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we'll focus on that and take as our theme, God's working in us, the willing and the doing. Notice, first of all, the mysterious work of God in us. Secondly, the resultant calling for us. And thirdly, the required fear and trembling. Before we consider the practical exhortation of the text to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, let's begin by considering the meaning of verse 13, which is the fundamental, mysterious truth of God working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, because this becomes the ground for that exhortation. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved, God is the one who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's a marvelous, mysterious truth, a truth of the gospel of grace. God works in us, he says. The one who works in us is God himself the God who had no beginning and who has no end, the God who cannot be bound to one place at one time, the God who fills the whole of the universe with his immense, massive, divine, sovereign power and presence, the God who called into existence in the beginning the whole creation of the heavens and the earth, the whole of the vast universe in which we live. That God, the God who from the beginning has been holding the whole world in his hands, preserving every creature, great and small, guiding and directing the whole universe and every creature in it, so that his will and counsel is accomplished in the world. The God who from before the foundation of the world had a plan, an eternal counsel, in which He knew the end from the beginning and determined from the ancient times of eternity the things that would come to pass in time and history. And now he carries out his perfect plan by his sovereign providence. The God who in his sovereignty has determined, has predestinated that some human beings will be vessels of wrath and some human beings will be vessels of mercy. The potter who takes the clay of the human race and makes these two vessels, 
This sovereign, almighty, glorious God is the one who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The apostle says that he works in you. This God works in you. Which means to say that he doesn't merely work around you. It's not merely that God is working in the universe, the whole creation all around you, upholding and governing all things, but he also works in you. And it means, too, then, that God does not merely work for you. Not only did God come into this world in the person of Christ and suffer and die on the cross for our sins and work for us, accomplish salvation for us on the cross, but also this, that this God of our salvation works in us, in us. He is in us. In the person of the Holy Spirit, he has come into our hearts, minds, and wills, and that's where he works. The apostle teaches that this great God works in you. So there, too, the idea is not merely that God is in you, that God is present in your heart and soul. He is. He is there. He's in you. He's with you. He's never leaving us or forsaking us. But he also works in you. He's doing something in you. He's working something in you, in your heart, in your soul. And that work that he's doing in you is a work of salvation. The apostle lays out what exactly that work is. He says, God, this great God, works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he says that in the context of salvation, of the exhortation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works both the willing and the doing when it comes to salvation. As the apostle writes in Romans chapter 9, it is not of him that willeth or of him that runneth, but of God who showeth mercy. God is the one who works in us, the willing and the doing. It doesn't come from us. He speaks of the willing and doing of God's good pleasure. When we see that concept of God's good pleasure in Scripture, we have to remember that there are two different ways that is used. In the first place, the Scripture speaks of God's good pleasure as the eternal will of God concerning the destinies of human beings. It's the good pleasure of his counsel, the good pleasure of election and reprobation. God has a good eternal pleasure, and he is pleased that certain people will be his people for all eternity, and other people will not. But the apostle is not speaking about God's good pleasure in that sense in the text, because he's talking about us willing and doing God's good pleasure. So in the second place, the scriptures use this term to refer to the will of God for 
the activities that he wants us to engage in. What pleases God for us to be doing, the activities he wants us to be involved in, particularly now those activities which he has ordained will be the means of giving us salvation and the way in which we will experience that salvation. God works in us both the willing and the doing of all those activities. What are those activities? Well, in the first place, God's good pleasure is that we would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would believe and trust in Jesus alone as our Savior, that we would embrace him, that we would cling to him, that we would rest in him and in him alone for all of our salvation, so that we would be justified by grace through faith in Christ. And then in the second place, in terms of sanctification, the good pleasure of God is that putting our faith in Christ alone for our righteousness, then we would repent of our sin and we would walk in obedience to God out of thankfulness for all that he has done. That's God's good pleasure as well. And the apostle teaches us in the text that God is the one who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both to will and to engage in and to exercise those activities by which God is pleased to justify us and to sanctify us. God is the one who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Start with that second one. He works in us to do his good pleasure. So in regard to faith, that means that God is the one who works in us so that we believe, so that we trust in Christ, we embrace Christ. God is the one who works in us so that we do that. God gives us the grace of the Holy Spirit who implants the gift of faith in our hearts, but then God and the Spirit also moves us and works in us so that we believe and we are justified by faith. And then in regard to sanctification, God is the one who works in us to do his good pleasure, that is, to repent, to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to walk in obedience, to live in obedience to all God's commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves so that we walk in the path of a godly, sanctified life. God works in us to do those things. Ephesians 2 verse 10 teaches us, we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But that's not all. The apostle says that God is the one who works in us both to will and to do. And the Arminian might say, yes, I can see that God works in us to do those things. We need God. We need his grace to help us to do those things. But when it comes to the willing part, the Arminian says, you have to produce that. 
You have to do the willing. You have to be willing. You may not resist when God comes to work in your life. You may not choose to resist. You have to choose to give yourself to God's working. But the apostle says, oh no, God is the one who works both to will and to do. God works the willing part as well. The fact that we will, that we choose, that we decide to believe in Christ and to walk in his commandments does not come from us. That willingness comes from God. He works it in us. He gives it to us. And that is a great mystery. Now, I would like you to look with me at two of our Reformed confessions to show you that the confessions appeal to this text in several places to show us these truths. First, the Canons of Dort, the third and fourth Head of Doctrine, Article 14. You can find it in the back of your Psalter. Article 14 of the third and fourth head speaks about faith. The canon says, Faith is therefore to be considered as the gift of God, not on account of its being offered by God to man, to be accepted or rejected at his pleasure, but because it is in reality conferred, breathed, and infused into him. Or even because God bestows the power or ability to believe, and then expects that man should, by the exercise of his own free will, consent to the terms of salvation and actually believe in Christ. The canon says, no, not that either. But because he who works in man both to will and to do and indeed all things in all, produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. So the fathers are teaching us, appealing to our text, that this also applies to faith. The apostle doesn't mention faith in our text, but the fathers taught us that that applies to faith too. Faith doesn't arise out of us or our free will. God works in us both the willing and the activity of faith so that we believe in Christ. Now in the second place, the Belgic Confession, Article 24. Here the fathers mention the text again, although this was written prior to the canons of Dort. I call your attention to the third paragraph, which states, Therefore we do good works. Now it's talking about sanctification, not faith anymore and justification, but sanctification. We do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are beholden to God, or we are indebted to God, for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you can see from those two references that our fathers saw in this text a proof that God is the one who works the willing and the doing of faith, by which alone we are justified 
by faith in Christ, and it applies to works, the good works of gratitude that we are called to do, the sanctification that God works in us. In both senses, God is the one who works in us, the willing and the doing. This is a great mystery. It always has been and it always will be. Because the Arminian will come back and say, but then what you're teaching is that God forces us to do things that we don't want to do. And that's just not true. That's not what we believe, and that's not what Scripture or the Confessions teaches. God never forces anyone to do anything that he doesn't want to do. See, this is the mystery. God is not abusive, tyrannical, forceful, but God in his sovereign, irresistible grace, in a mysterious way that we can't comprehend, comes into our hearts and moves us. He softens what is hard. He opens what is closed. He changes. He heals. He allures us by his love and grace and mercy in an irresistible way. And thank God for that. It is profound and mysterious how God works in us, both the willing and the doing. Now the exhortation follows. The apostle grounds his exhortation on that truth. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because of that truth that I just taught you. Some might object to this exhortation. Some might take the truth of the first point and say, that truth means there's nothing that we have to do. Some might object to the apostle himself. Why are you telling us to do something? Why are you telling us to work? Why are you telling us to be active if God does all the willing and all the doing? It seems to me that there's nothing for us to do but to sit here and to wait until God does everything. To sit here and relax and wait until God brings us to heaven. But the apostle is grounding this exhortation to work out our salvation in the very fact that God works in us, both the willing and the doing. You see, this, this objection is the idea of a careless and profane person, a person who claims to be a Christian, but who hasn't really tasted the power of grace, the glory of grace, the, the preciousness of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he's looking for excuses or reasons, pretexts, why he doesn't have to be active in the Christian life. The apostle is encouraging the saints in Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling by the fact that God works in them, the willing and the doing. God works in you. Therefore, you don't have to be discouraged. You don't have to be in despair. You don't have to be hopeless as you look at the monumental task of living the Christian life. 
of continuing in faith, of living in love. You don't have to be in despair and discouragement because God works in you. God will hold you up. God will lift you up. God will strengthen you. God will carry you. He will be with you. He will work in you. Both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Therefore, he is encouraging the Philippian saints to have a positive, joyful, thankful attitude that longs and strives to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But what does that mean? What does the apostle really exhort us to here? And now we have to be very clear. In the first place, the apostle is not saying that we have to work in order to merit our salvation or that we have to work in order to earn our salvation, or that there's something that we must do and our salvation depends on it, so that we carry this burden that you need to do this. And if you don't do this, you won't be saved. That's not what he's saying. Salvation doesn't depend on us. Salvation doesn't depend on anything that we do. Anything that we will, anything that we work, it doesn't even depend on our faith. It only depends on God. The whole scriptures must be taken into account when we consider this verse. And we know what the message of the scriptures is. From beginning to end, it is the great gospel message that salvation is of the Lord. The scriptures emphatically teach that. Think of Noah in his ark with his family being lifted up on the waves of the flood. And we're told in Scripture that Noah, that eight souls were saved by water. Or the children of Israel coming to the Red Sea and God miraculously divides the waters and leads them through. God saved them from Pharaoh and his hosts. We think of Jonah in the belly of the whale having sunk down under the waves and billows of the Mediterranean Sea, he was in a hopeless condition. There was nothing he could do to save himself. And then God prepared this fish to swallow him up. And it was inside the belly of the fish that Jonah was brought to confess, salvation is of the Lord. The angel was sent to Joseph in a dream to say to him, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, unto you because she is with child of the Holy Ghost, and thou shalt call the child's name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. By grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And over and over the message of Scripture resounds, Salvation is from God. God alone can save. The apostle isn't saying to the Philippians, save yourselves. Rather, he's saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in light of all the rest of Scripture, we can interpret that in two ways, or there are two aspects of that exhortation. First of all, it is an exhortation to faith. Work out your own salvation. Bring about your own salvation. And the scriptures teach us 
that we will be saved by faith. Acts 16, verse 31, the Philippian jailer trembling in his fear during the earthquake, about to commit suicide. And Paul says, wait, wait. And the man says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the calling of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, the exhortation of the text, work out your own salvation, is continue to believe in Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ. Continue in Christ. Stay in Christ. And receive from Christ all that you need for salvation. Salvation from your sins. Forgiveness of sins. Salvation from the wrath to come. Never trust in anyone or anything else than the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Work out your salvation. Cling to Christ continually in the midst of the storms and troubles of life, the upheavals, the ups and downs and the troubles of life. Continue to cling to him. Continue to look to Jesus and embrace him by faith. Work out your salvation. And then in the second place, working out our salvation includes the exhortation to repentance and obedience of gratitude in the Christian life. It includes the exhortation to love the Lord our God, to walk in all good works. We saw that the Belgic Confession mentions that text in its article on good works and sanctification. That's included. As those who know that we are justified by faith in Christ and who have comfort and peace with God, he says, work out your salvation now with fear and trembling. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his commandments. Walk in his precepts. Work out your sanctification. Never in Scripture are we told to sit down and do nothing. We're always urged, encouraged, exhorted, because God is pleased to bring us through this life to the glories of salvation by faith and in the way of obedience to his commandments. Always by faith and in the way of love. Putting off the old man and putting on the new. Work out your own salvation, beloved. And be encouraged by the fact that God works in you to will and to do all those activities. And then notice that God, that the apostle, says specifically to work out your own salvation. That's an interesting aspect of the text. Work out your own salvation. In a certain sense, your salvation and my salvation are the same. Salvation is the same for all God's people. God saves us from our sins, from death and hell and the devil, and brings us into heaven. But God saves you along a different path of life than me, and he saves you down a different path than everyone else sitting here. So we can say to each one, work out your own salvation. 
as I must work out my own salvation. We are all very different. We have different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different strengths and weaknesses. Some of us are men, some of us are women. Single, married, fathers, mothers. Some of us are employers, some are employees. We all have different circumstances and experiences of life. And therefore, the way God brings us to salvation is a little bit different for each one of us. So he says, work out your own salvation. Maybe he says that too because maybe we're often tempted to think of everyone else, their problems and their sins and the things that they need to work out in their lives. So the apostle says, now focus on yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that in conclusion this afternoon, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, not with pride and self-confidence. The apostle seems to like that phrase, fear and trembling. He uses it in many places. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he says to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So he admits to the Corinthians his own fears and trembling as a preacher. A preacher has to work out his own salvation in a certain path of life, which is different from those who are not preachers. He says about Titus in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 15, that Titus remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. He says in Ephesians 6, verse 5, servants, and in our modern world we would say employees, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ. Those whose path of life is to be a worker, an employee, are called to be obedient to your masters with fear and trembling. What does this phrase mean? Well, the apostle wants us to understand and to believe in our hearts that this working out of our salvation is something to be taken very seriously. It's something that we must not think, well, that will be easy. That will just be a snap of the fingers. We must not minimize it. We must not trivialize it. He wants us to take it seriously with fear and trembling. You have fear and trembling whenever you take something very seriously. Whenever you consider it very important. You don't make light of it. You don't jest about it. It's important. And so you do it with fear and trembling. A sense of awe and reverence. A sense of sobriety and gravity. So, for example, it means that we have a healthy understanding of the power of sin. If ever we think to ourselves that sin is not that big of a deal or that it's not that powerful, that it's pretty easy to overcome sin, then we're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But when we remember 
that sin is a terrible, awful monster. Our sin. Not something to be trifled with, not something to be played with. The fires of temptation are not something to get close to. Then we work it out with fear and trembling. Furthermore, it's when we have a proper understanding of the devil and who he is and his power. If we don't think about the devil as a present danger in our lives, if we almost ignore him or forget about him, that he's there, attacking, tempting, trying to lead us astray, then we won't probably have the proper fear and trembling we ought to have. But when we remember, like Peter says, that the devil is like a lion roaming about, seeking people to devour, then we'll be watchful, we'll be careful, we'll be vigilant with fear and trembling. Furthermore, still, if ever we get into our minds that we have basically reached the pinnacle of holiness, that basically we've been so sanctified that we're pretty close to perfection, then we won't have the fear and trembling we ought to have either. It's when we remember throughout the whole of our life that even now, I only have a small beginning of the obedience that I will have in heaven. And I still have to run the race that is set before me with patience looking to Jesus. Then we will have the right fear and trembling. And finally, I think maybe more than anything else, we will have the proper fear and trembling in working out our salvation when we fasten our eyes on the cross. When looking at the cross, we see by faith our Lord Jesus hanging there, hands and feet nailed to the wooden stake, laying down his life and descending into the depths of hell. And we see at that cross, there is the manifestation of the dreadfulness of my sin. That's how bad my sin is. That it led Jesus to have to give his precious blood on the cross and to descend into the fearful darkness of everlasting wrath so that I could be saved. Then we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now I mean the fear of ever displeasing God for the great unspeakable gift he's given to us. As a child of God, we don't want ever to displease him. We want to walk in his precepts. We want to experience his favor. We want to walk in his covenant. We want to draw nearer to him, not farther away. And so we'll have a sense of fear, of sin, so that we flee from it. May God grant unto us grace to continue down the path of life he has chosen for us, working out our salvation and looking to him. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, we give thanks for thy salvation. And we give thanks, Lord, for thy word of exhortation that we may be active in clinging to our Savior, Jesus Christ, 
and seeking from him all that we need for our salvation. And Lord, grant that we might also be busy in living for Christ, a life of thankful obedience. We pray that thou would be glorified and praised in all of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We sing number 381. The doxology will be number eight, which you can find in the doxology section in the back of the Psalter. Let's sing number 381. Stanzas one, two, and four. One, two, and four.
bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Thank you.